This week's episode of the Art of the Cut podcast is brought to you by LaCie. As one of the leading media storage companies in the entertainment industry, LaCie has consistently brought innovative ideas to the market. By now, everyone knows the iconic orange rubber bumper that wraps the LaCie rugged drive. But did you know that LaCie has a rugged SSD? With the ability to transfer 4K raw video with speeds up to 4 megabytes per second, hardware encryption, and a truly rugged design that will take most anything you can throw at it, including dropping it in water or running it over with a two-ton car, the rugged SSD is a dream piece of equipment for any content creator who is on the move. For listeners of the Art of the Cut podcast, LaCie is offering 10% off the rugged SSD or any other LaCie drive when you shop on filmtools.com with coupon code LACIEPOD. That's L-A-C-I-E-P-O-D at checkout to receive 10% off your LaCie purchase on filmtools.com. So next time you need a new drive, head over to filmtools.com and use code LACIEPOD at checkout to get 10% off your LaCie purchase. Hello, and welcome to the Art of the Cut podcast. I'm Steve Holfish. I'm a feature film editor and discuss the art and craft of film editing with my colleagues in film and TV. In this episode, I'm talking with Marianne Brandon, ACE. Marianne is a primetime Emmy nominee for Alias, an ace Eddie nominated editor for Star Trek, How to Train Your Dragon, and for Star Wars Episode Seven, for which she was also nominated for an Academy Award. Her filmography also includes Venom, Steven Spielberg's Super 8, DreamWorks Kung Fu Panda, and Mission Impossible 3, among many others. Marianne and I have talked twice before on the text version of Art of the Cut on Pro Video Coalition for Star Wars The Force Awakens and for Passengers. Today we discuss her work on the latest Star Wars film, Rise of Skywalker. Tell me a little bit about um, how long you've been working with J.J. Has it been before Alias, or was that the beginning of your relationship? No, Alias was the beginning. That's when I met him. Yeah, that's been a while. Mm, what was Alias? 2000... I keep wanting to say it's either 2001 or 2003. Yeah, I think but... it might be one. Oh, okay. And there you go, 2001. That's a long relationship. Um, do you remember how that began, how he either found you or you found him? I was doing sort of small features or, or lower budget features. It was just getting harder to travel because a lot of them were on location. And I had a kid in third grade and a kid going into kindergarten. And we I traveled a bunch with them, which was great. And we had a fantastic time. But so my, a friend of mine, they, she had tried to hire me on Felicity and I was... It's a little reluctant to do television, but you're going to love J.J. and Abrams and Matt Reeves. And I'm, I was like, I'm sure I will. But anyway, long story short, she introduced me. She convinced me to meet him on Alias because they were cutting at Disney, which was very near to my house. So it sounded like a good a good. It uh, sounded like a good thing. And then I met him and we instantly hit it off. And I spent most of the interview laughing. He spent <laughs> most of the interview telling funny stories. And then he said, I'll see you tomorrow. <laughs> awesome. Uh, th- that idea that you were concerned about family and how much time you were spending and traveling and uh, how close the place was to your home is really interesting to me just in that you know, we need to be conscious of our own well-being when we're deciding on what to work on. Of course. I mean, everything, every decision I've made has been really with that consideration. 
first and foremost. And I've talked to other people in the editing world, and um, I think they do that as well. I think it's becoming harder to deny that that's where you're, you've got to cons- make a balance or it's not going to work well. You've cut with uh, several other directors, many other directors. Are there any drawbacks or, or, you know, we probably know what the benefits are. Are there any drawbacks to working with someone as long as you have with J.J. or is it just good things? I haven't found any drawbacks. You know, J.J. also does a a lot of other things. So it's not, you know, he produces plays, he does television. It's not just feature films. So because I'm only in one part of his feature film life, we come and go. And I think that keeps it fresh and real. And I learn a lot when I go out and work with other directors and I sort of absorb things and I bring what I know and I bring my strengths and weaknesses and I bring them back. So every time I do another project with JJ, I've had this other experience that I come back with. So I usually come back with a stronger, from a more confident place or more done that, been there kind of place. And he does as well. And we bring our mutual experiences to it. And that's probably a huge strength combined with the fact that we're so familiar with each other and we know. And a lot of times we'll finish each other's sentence and just look at each other and go, yeah, I know exactly what we're going to do here. And uh, so that's the benefit. No, no drawbacks for me. That's awesome. Um, uh, and, and I'm sure it helps, like you said, to be working with a lot of other directors that you're pulling creatively um, from those relationships. I think you have to. I, I, I don't think otherwise it would get really tiring. I mean, then I would only understand JJ's style, which for someone like me, it would make it very difficult. Uh, we talked about cutting TV. Back then, the difference between TV and film was quite a chasm, but the landscapes changed quite a bit recently. What differences did you notice between the two in the early years when you jumped over to Alias, and have you done any TV since then? I haven't done any TV since then. Yes, it has changed. And I have always said the best training I ever got was on Alias because it was like making a mini feature every six weeks. And it was intense. It was a lot of footage. It was figuring out things on the fly. It was figuring out how to rearrange things so they made more sense or recreate, you know, final recreation in the cutting room of of the writing. Everything was on a, a much shorter schedule because you were making 16, 17 episodes a season. The turnaround, because an episode took, you know, 10 days to shoot and there were only seven days a week, you can imagine we were losing time every week (laughs) in terms of getting ahead of ourselves. And so in those days, you know, there weren't like eight episode seasons or six episode seasons that you had six months to do. You had, because network television needed to be fed more product, the schedules were insane. 26 weeks? Yeah, something like that. It was ridiculous. You also made the jump from cutting film to cutting digitally. Uh, Do you remember what project that happened on or what year that happened on? And have you always been on Avid or have you used others? No, um, I remember it very distinctly. I was cutting on film. I cut a film for Matthew Robbins called Bingo. And I think it happened earlier than that, like on a film called All's Fair. And the director said to me, there's this company called Ediflex and they want you to try their system. Can we try it on this film? And it was really cumbersome. You had like a stack of tape decks and the tape decks would rearrange, you know, to each cut and you'd hear them click in when they, you were trying to do a cut. And it was, um, 
slightly manual, slightly digital. Like it was fully digital, but the screen was hard to read. And uh, I did it, but it was kind of half of me trying to figure out the system while I was desperately trying to figure out the film. Right. Thankfully, there wasn't tons of footage, but that system did not work for me, nor did that system last long. And after that went to Lightworks, I think I did bingo on the Lightworks, or did I do it on, I might've done it on film. I cannot remember. I did Lightworks for a few films. They tried to copy the way a, a chem worked, right? So mm -hmm. things would go left to right, and the switches and the buttons looked like a chem, and it was also very button heavy. And then I switched to Abbott on Grumpy or Old Men. There were three editors on that film because it was a very short schedule. They just sat me down in front of an Abbott and I kind of self-taught myself. I've been on Abbott ever since. I mean, there was one point on Alias that JJ wanted to try the Final Cut Pro. And I was like, please, there's so much footage, so much story to tell. I need to not worry about the system I'm on. But the good news about coming up cutting film was that I still use an Avid the way I cut film on a moviola. You know, I feed in the choices and I come out with a cut on the right-hand side. So I don't use a lot of fancy bells and whistles of the Avid that I know a lot of people do use. What skills do you think you brought with you because you cut on film? You know, I still look for the piece of the take I want to use. I still sort of drop it in the way I would build a cut. You know, if I were building a film reel, I still put the sound to it the way I would line up sound slowly but surely i'm learning some after effects and how to do visual you know i know my way around visual effects now because it's necessary but my still my main thing is you know performance and story and i still build a cut that way with star wars uh once production was done and you'd assembled a first cut what kind of uh structural discussions or decisions were made and and how did that process play out well, we'd sit down and we'd all watch it. My co-editor, Stefan Groove, and I, and JJ, and the writer, Chris Terrio, and the producer, Michelle, and Kathleen, and everyone would throw in their version of what their impression was and is and what story we're telling. And we looked for the clearest, best story performance and came up with where we were going and ha what the balance would be. And you know, it's an evolving process like any film. Once it's up in front of you, you can see the strengths and weaknesses and what's working and what's not working. And we just tried to balance it. I mean, there's nothing very specific to talk about because like all films, you know, you take one thing out of one place and it works better or it works better out of the film or in another place. And you keep, you know, you try a bunch of stuff that intellectually you think will work. And throw it up there again and see if it does work. Uh, did you use scene cards on a wall to help do that structural stuff or no? I have done in the past, like my assistant's like, do you want scene cards? And it's funny, they're great to like, just remember what scenes are what. I don't find myself using that, them that much because I didn't sort of grow up in the business with them. Um, we did use some scene cards on this film for the like the battle at the end because we were trying to figure out where to cut, intercut, going back to Ray fighting the Emperor or going back to the battle up above. So we used scene cards to sort of break that down and switch it around. But we pretty much... Once we did that initially, we kind of abandoned it. But it does definitely give you a visual. If you have a big bulk of scenes like that, and oftentimes when they're shooting a scene like that, especially with a lot of visual effects, 
the numbering system isn't really going to help you. So, you know, seeing 235 doesn't necessarily come after seeing, you know, 201. I mean, it's great to have like the script and the script supervisor's notes, but they're not helpful. You kind of, the scene cards are more helpful for that. Uh, that with the intercutting question was one of my uh, next ones, which is uh, during that intercutting, when kind of Ray was off on her own story and the rest of the cast was doing something else. Do you remember what motivated some of those exact moments of intercut, or or how did the intercutting between those stories play out? We tried to find places that we'd leave in an emotional moment where you know the team up up top was in trouble. We tried to match the emotion going down below and you know ray was in trouble and you didn't want to be happy for one part of the team and be knowing the other part of the team was about to be you know we were trying to balance emotions and keep things going that way so we just tried to pick dramatic moments that we knew you could leave and when we come back you could pick up that feeling straight away it's tricky. It is tricky. You have to, there's an argument to be made for leaving a scene at a, a several different points. And we wanted to find the best balance of that. I think we did in the end. I think the end battle, to me, works first and foremost on an emotional level, which I'm most happy about. Because the details to me sometimes aren't as important as the emotion and the drama and feeling, you know, your characters. And do you feel like those emotional moments when you were cutting back and forth were not exactly the way the script was? Was it because you had a better sense of the emotion from watching the dailies? Um, You know, in a a big battle scene like that, the script at best is kind of a guide. You know, I've worked on several films, like Venom had a big battle scene at the end. And although the script's very useful for shooting, obviously, in those scenes, you often go away from the script because it's really just a guide and then you get what you get and of course you're adding visual effects so you can have other things happen you can take the footage and bend it a little bit to having other things happen especially in scenes like that you kind of find the story as you're going along and feeling what's right and where you want to be next so it's very hard to script a battle scene i mean if you've read any scripts with big battles in it you know a lot of times it's four or five lines that say you know the the rebellion shows up in their X-Wings and, you know, fight the, you know, TIE fighters. That's just a description. Then you've got to figure out the shots, then you've got to figure out the people and what they're doing and how they're reacting. And that's not often scripted. It's an eighth of a page of description for six pages of, or six minutes of time, or 10 or 12 or 15 minutes of time. Exactly. I mean, when it says the rebels are losing, that can be 10 shots. You know, of your characters, you know, taking a hit or, do you know, it's just, it's impossible to write those out. Scene transitions seemed really important to me, uh, as they always are. But in this movie, the transition from one scene to another seemed really critical. As you came out of cutting dailies, how did you start to massage those transitions from one scene to another? Well, you know, Star Wars always has wipes, so there's always that. (laughs) (laughs) You know, you can... When you're done, you can just wipe into another thing. And that works quite often very well. But I'm thinking, you know, just like you were talking about the inner cutting, that it's emotional or or that you maybe you cut a scene one way and it ends on a wide shot. And then you realize that you started the next scene because it's their shot out of order. And the next scene starts with a wide shot. And you're like, oh, I can't have a wide shot going to a wide shot. Now what do I do? 
I'm very aware of transitions and I'm very aware when I think a scene is overstayed its welcome or understayed its welcome and needs a little bit more. And I usually try to find something, some sort of connective. Sometimes it's really just a visceral thing where a spark can go off and then you follow the spark to a person walking into a room. Sometimes it's a, a line, an overlap of a line that brings you into the other scene. I mean, a lot of times you'll hear, a, you know, the screech of the falcon before you see the falcon, for instance, in a scene. Each one's different. I don't take anything for granted. A lot of times JJ designs them and has a shot he wants to come in on a scene on. And, you know, I'll figure out the out to get to that. If it works, great. And if it doesn't work, we figure something else out. But each one is different, and each one, you know, sometimes it's a musical thing. Sometimes John Williams comes in and has some brilliant musical thing, or we'll have some temp music that'll bring us out of a scene or into another scene. I don't have one answer. I have a lot of answers. Yeah, I, I would figure that you'd have a lot of answers. <laughs> it's a pretty complicated question. Yeah. That's interesting about John Williams. Did you guys ever kind of give him some latitude where you're like, if you need an extra couple of seconds for... <laughs> I always said to John Williams, if you need anything, tell, you know, tell me what you're feeling. Because I often think if the music doesn't work or the composer can't, and I've had this with Michael Giacchino as well, the music isn't working, then there's something wrong with the cut. And we need to fig figure out what it is. So I often and always, when I work with composers, I feel like our jobs are so intertwined. That's a given that they have latitude. Because this is such an iconic series of films and it's got such a deep history, what kind of sound and music did your assistants preload for you from the previous movies? Every single <laughs> movie of John, you know, that John Williams did. All John Williams music. And then we pretty much pulled from Star Wars, all the Star Wars films. I mean, we had eight other films to pull music from. So it wasn't really, I mean, we that was a gift, right? And Skywalker provided every piece of Star Wars sound there is. So we pretty much had a library of Star Wars. We also carried with us, you know, music editor from day one and a sound editor from day one. So if I finish a sequence and I, I'd put some general sound effects in and specific sound effects that I wanted, and then I'd give it to Robbie Stambler and he would, or my assistant Jane Tones, and she would, one of them would fill out a lot of the sound. I would sort of say what I wanted, and then they'd embellish it. And we had a pretty great team. Did you find that, that there was a conversation going on in the NLE, not uh, a human speaking conversation, between hearing the scene with the new uh, sound effects and looking at it and going, ooh, with, with those sound effects, it changes things? I use sound as part of the cutting. So if I really wanted to affect something or the sound was a major part of the scene, I always asked for the piece of sound and put it in. Same thing with visual effects. I had Marty Cloner, my visual effects editor, and Carrie Blackman putting in laser swords and blasts and sometimes doing split screens for me or doing, I mean, any kind, I mean, they were amazing. If I wanted to use, extend a shot, but an actor was speaking, I could even have them, you know, close their mouths. And, you know, they were pretty great at what they do. So, Anything I needed, there was a team to do it before it even went to ILM. When did you come out of the movie? Did you cut previs before the shooting started? We didn't really have previs on this film. I mean, we did use previs sort of as we went, 
and a lot of post-vis, but we didn't deal with a lot of pre-vis. So I came on two days before we were shooting. I usually come on a week or two, but I was doing Venom on, up until that's a Saturday. I flew on a Sunday to the UK and I started on a Monday and they started shooting on a Wednesday. So that was really tight. <laughs> no wonder you need a break. Exactly. So with no previs, with something like those, the big action battle at the end, did you use any like previous parts of movies, Star Wars movies to try to, I don't know, like, like, sometimes, yeah, sometimes we'd pull out shots from other Star Wars movies and just put them in as a sort of marker. Sometimes we'd use stuff we'd pull off the internet as a, you know, just to kind of fill in some battle stuff or, or transitions or yeah, we'd use anything we could find to help us. <laughs> Pulling stuff off the internet. <laughs> I mean, you know, like sure. Marty pull like space stuff and then he put it in a background or something just for the time being so we could screen it and it wouldn't be green. As long as you kind of know what you're looking for, it's not hard to find. Yeah, I remember doing a, a green screen shot and wanting something to go on the green screen. I just went out, took a picture with my cell phone and <laughs> that was in for quite a while uh yeah in in uh george lucas it's you know famously used world war ii dogfight footage for that original star wars movie to exactly kind of, to, i mean it makes total sense to me right yeah i mean then you kind of can see and then you can see it's easier to have a base for something and then see what you need as opposed to just a blank page right absolutely absolutely yeah. Uh, so it, yeah, I'm really interested to hear that there was so little or no previs. That's seems just, unusual on a big movie you know these what? days. We didn't have time. Our schedule was pretty short. You know, JJ was brought on much later than he should have been. You know, they had like three months less time to write the script. So it was tight. Do you cut action scenes on mute to start or are you building them with a the sound as you go? I pretty much do it on mute and then add the sound. I mean, I got to start somewhere. I can't, you know, it'd be, if I was worried about the sound the whole time, carrying the sound, it would prohibit me from concentrating on what the picture needs to be. And so I, I do mute and then add the sound. And then sometimes I'll try and find music before I even find sound, but it's always picture first. Yeah, it reminds me of a, a gift that I gave to my editing team on one of my last movies, which was the Ten Commandments of Film Editing. And one of them was, tempt not with John Williams, he composes not for thee. <laughs> but, for, <laughs> but for you, <laughs> you could for us, tempt. For us, he was perfect. <laughs> yeah, I, I bet he was. You you mentioned Stefan, working with Stefan on the film as a co-editor. He worked with uh, probably J.J. on Ten Cloverfield. Is that how... He came. He did. He worked on Cloverfield Lane, and he also cut the trailer for Star Trek Into Darkness, or maybe Star Trek. I can't remember. But they worked together in marketing as well, and um, I think he has a couple of projects lined up at Bad Robot. He's uh, he's really smart and talented, and um, it was really fun to work with him. How did you two collaborate? We collaborated differently than Mary Jo and I used to collaborate, which I brought to the table. I asked him up front, I said, look, this is going to be a really 
short schedule and I don't want to divide up the film. I just want to cut the film. So, you know, I'll take whatever. If I'm working on something, you take the next thing to come in. The important thing is by the time they finish shooting, we have some uh, assembly and we kept going from there. So we basically, each of us had to go at everything. Like we just worked off of each other. We talked a lot. We really collaborated on this film. Uh, did you guys do any um, screenings beyond studio or friends and family screenings? And how did they affect what you were doing? Uh, we did not. And that was that's the hardest thing about working on a film like Star Wars. You really can't because it's so, if it gets out, it's not a good thing. We really only could screen for the studio and limited friends and family. Uh, so we really did not have a lot of screenings. So we were working in a very small, with a very small reaction to the film. You know, people like Spielberg had watched it and because he's, you know, always been a part of it and people at Bad Robot, but really we couldn't go outside of that. Does that affect you in, in any way or does it, do you just have to be confident in your own objectivity? I think you got to take what they say and figure out how it would affect a wider audience. I know people really put a lot of stock in previews and there is a lot to be gained from that. With these big action films, you know, when they're not sussed out and, you know, you're still having ILM working on a thousand shots, they're hard to preview anyway because people are taken out of the film and, you know, they say it doesn't affect them, but it does affect what they think. They're not the easiest films to preview. So I'm not sure even if we could have, we would have gotten an accurate response. Yeah, maybe if we had shown it to a more objective audience, we would have gotten more feedback. But I think we understood what we had and what we were going to release before, You know, by the end of the film. I think we had enough feedback and enough people had seen it. And by the time a film is at that stage... It's kind of what it is, unless you're going to plan on doing a bunch of reshoots, right, and change everything. Yeah. Did you guys do any reshoots? Were there Was there anything that you felt like you needed when you were editing? We did. We added a couple of scenes. We had two weeks in, back in London in July, and we added a couple of scenes or and changed, added some dialogue that we felt we need. And there was a couple of very small emotional moments. We, uh, JJ and I, decided that we, and Stefan, that we, would benefit the film, and we went back and got those. Can you tell me what those were, or what? Uh, can you give me an so example? The scene on the island with Luke when Luke sees Ray, the film kind of informed us after it was together what it needed to say, and so we went back and got that dialogue. Uh, what else did we shoot? It was like a funny moment between Poe and Ray when she, he lands the Falcon and it's on fire. We wanted to have a a more humorous exchange between them. Uh, a couple of things like that. Nothing major, no. Uh, well, I think it's really interesting that those that you discover, like those little light moments that you, where you're looking for some humor and you're watching a, a larger string of scenes and going, you know what, we need a little lift here or something, right? Is that how it works? I mean, I think that's how it works. And I do think sometimes there's plot things that might be confusing and, you know, a little bit of a tweak or a new scene could can help it. And sometimes the film speaks to you, you know, you just want a moment where maybe a better moment of one of the things on the reshoots we did, we shot Ray's introduction where she's 
up in the air and she the rocks are spinning around her because we just we wanted to introduce Leia and her and I you know we, I had to go back and find good shots of Leia that we hadn't used in seven and we had those and it kind of made us think oh we could have this really fun scene at the to introduce Leia and Ray so the film kind of informs you of things it might want it needs and yes levity is always good leave some room for reshoots and and additions you know in the budget because those things you never know what you need until you get into editing exactly exactly i mean i think that's it's crazy not to leave i think all films now kind of build in reshoots because i think you can't um you know the value of them is it's like you know when you do animation films it happens all the time because you're just creating shots right and you get to create more shots once you put your film together. It's the same thing. It's like you've got a, a story and it could be told a little better. So why not? It's a great investment. What amazes me is that somebody with, and, and I'm not talking about JJ in particular, he has got incredible talent as a writer, but that scripts in general, you can't sense those things in the script that you sense in editing. I think it's hard. I don't think you can. I think that's why editing is definitely the final rewrite. <clears throat> and you can't avoid it. I don't think you just put something together and you go, oh, my God, it's exactly what the script was. I don't think it ever is that because the written word is different than the visual or a performance can interpret something. I mean, you can tell a joke 50 different ways, more. You know, how do you tell that joke? Well, that's the job of the director and the editor and the light, you know, the camera person. And the, I mean, everyone has a, is having an interpretation of that. Yeah. It's all those things added up together and you don't know what they're going to turn into until you look at the dailies. Correct. Exactly. Yeah. And, and even beyond the dailies, even if you see it in the dailies, you don't realize what a scene is going to, you know, a scene looks great. And then you put it in the greater context of the, of the entire story and you go, Oh, it's a great right. scene, but now the story's scene's got to go. Did you guys cut? Were there any scenes that you needed to cut? I think we cut some scenes, yeah. Yeah. Do you remember what the what was the um, running time of your editor's cut? I mean, it was over three hours, and we were never going to make a three-hour film. It was just not going to happen. I mean, look, the film will dictate how long it's going to be, and I don't think J.J. went into it saying, you know, it's going to be this or this, or it's got to be under two, or it's got to be over three. He would never do that. But we all agree that the story will dictate it and what it can sustain, right? Because it's so easy in these really massively long films. They could be great, but, you know, if you fall out of the film as an audience because things are taking too long or you're ahead of the film and you know what's going to happen and you not in a good way, you know, it's not creating tension. It's kind of creating boredom or you have too much time to spend looking at other things besides being enthralled in the story, that's a problem. I think it's a problem anyway. Oh, yeah. Well, so where do you think that, where did the time come out of? Was it just cutting down some of the big action scenes? Yeah, it was just, you know, cutting it down and rejiggering to make things feel like they were the right amount of time spent and that you got it and you moved on. And you, or you felt it and you moved on. I would never stay in a scene beyond where you lost the feeling, you know, and started looking at the background or the CGI or the, you know, that's terrible to me. So, I mean, I can't point you to one place. I can say it's, it's just a pacing thing throughout the film. Some films 
work at a slower pace. Some films work at a higher pace. This film, I believe, is very highly paced where it needs to be and not where it needs to be slowed down. So I don't have an answer for you. I, it's just a feeling. Yeah. I'm going to let you go. Thank you so much for all your generous time and uh, congratulations on a great movie. Well, thank you. And thank you for taking the time to interview me. It was lovely to talk to you. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Bye, Steve. Thanks for listening to the Art of the Cut podcast. Also, check out ProVideoCoalition.com for more than 200 interviews with the world's top editors. Or read the book, Art of the Cut, Conversations with Film and TV Editors, for a topic-driven, curated experience. Thanks again to my guest, Marianne Brandon, ACE. I'm Steve Hallfish. If this is a podcast that you got something out of, follow me on Twitter and Instagram at at Steve Hallfish. Also, subscribe to this podcast and make sure to tell a filmmaking or film-loving friend.